Coming to you from the First Presbyterian Church in Grand Haven, Michigan, it's Ask Science Mike Live! You've got questions, he's got answers, even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them, but he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. This is another stop on the Finding God in the Waves book tour, and we're doing a live episode. The questions are unfiltered, the answers unrehearsed, and calamity is likely just around the corner. Uh, if you want to check out an event like this or something else that could be coming up, go to AskScienceMike.com and click on the events tab, or you can know for sure that I'll be in San Francisco, California, February 2nd, or Arizona, February 6th, uh, February 15th, I'll be at Northwest Nazarene University in Boise, yes, Boise, February 19th, I'll be in Chapel Hill, North Carolina for another Ask Science Mike Live, and there's a lot more events coming up after that, so I'd love to see you there, but for now, we've got a show to do, so let's get it started. Hi. Hi, Ty. First time listener, long time fan. Uh, <laughs> so I need to know why do women go to the restroom in like large numbers? <laughs> what are they doing in there? And why don't babies cry in Asia? Why don't what? Don't babies cry in Asia? Why don't babies cry in Asia? Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, why do women go to the bathroom in groups, scientifically speaking? That's definitely going to be a social science thing. There's no evolutionary impetus. And unless I'm misrecalling my anthropology, that's not universal across human cultures. Um, what in our culture, though, reinforces that? I, I think you have stumped me on the first question. <laughs> like, do you have an answer? Yes. You do? Let's do this. I've never had an audience answer, ever. <laughs> but... Let's knock down some patriarchy and let the ladies speak for themselves. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Okay. I may have an answer to your question. Has anyone ever seen Harry Potter? Raise your hand high. Higher. Okay, cool. We got some hands. First movie or first, depends on how hardcore of a fan you are. Um, the scene in the bathroom where Hermione gets attacked by a troll she went in alone, okay? That's what happens when women go to the bathroom alone. You get attacked by trolls. And it is not fun for anyone. All right. This is going to be a fun night. I actually read an anthropologist's explanation for why babies don't cry in Eastern cultures as often, but I can't remember it. Strike out, first question, okay. The other part of why people listen to me on the internet is I have a weird habit of being honest. So you'll notice a lot of people that do, like, if you ever seen, like, a, a, a radio call-in show with some expert, like, if they don't know something, a lot of times they'll just tap dance, and I have this bad habit of just going, huh, beats me. Okay, so first question. <laughs> I have no idea. Question two. 
also on another note, how do you grapple with the idea that the children of God live on earth, but there's this idea that the universe is kind of um, infinite, and there could be planets with life out there somewhere. Mm. So when you say the idea that the children of God live on earth, you mean as described in the scriptures, for example? As the idea that we've all been kind of raised in the Bible kind of denotes that yeah. like it doesn't exist, like other planets out yeah, there, okay. like he created earth. Yep. What's the point of the Torah? Right? That's the first five books of the Bible. That's where the creation story that Christians hold dear is, uh, is chronicled primarily in Genesis, uh, although lots in the Torah. Even further into the writings and the prophets will have elements where they discuss creation. Uh, what's, the, what's the purpose of that document? Um, I would argue that it is a very post-Enlightenment modernist thing to do to approach that text as making scientific claims, and here's why. When the Bible was recorded, the whole thing, not just the Torah, science didn't exist, and there was no such thing as a scientific claim, right? So we take a modern way of thinking uh, that has shaped our cognition, and we force it back onto that text. And I think doing that has some advantages, makes the Bible very personal, first of all, and for a lot of people that helps them feel closer to God, uh, but on the other hand can make us really deeply misunderstand what those texts are about. So if you talk to anthropologists, uh, the creation story in Genesis has incredible similarities to contemporary creation stories uh, of its day. It's very similar to you know, Babylonian accounts, for example. Floods, stars being created, and earth being populated. But the big, the big thing in Genesis is not the scientific description of cosmology. It uses the same cosmology every other culture did, a, a flat earth resting on pillars inside of a dome that had holes in it, Heaven was on the other side. The light of heaven shone through those holes, and then sometimes the floodgates of heaven would be opened, and water would fall from heaven through all those tiny holes, and you would get what? Rain. Today, we would understand that as a relatively inaccurate cosmology. <laughs> but the point of Genesis was not so that people hurting livestock in the desert 3,500 years ago would get quantum physics. The point of those documents was to describe God. And so when you look at other creation myths of that time, universally, the universe was born out of violence. Wars between gods, or in one case, a god slaying his lover and slinging her entrails across the sky, and that's the Milky Way, right? I'm serious. And in Genesis, God says, I'm going to create with word and with thought and with intention, and I'm going to what? I'm going to call it good. 
this God loved creation, was not indifferent to creation, and (laughs) the earth was not a ball of poop as it was in some other creations, which I mean is like, like not totally unreasonable. Go grab some mud like from a riverbed, and you'd be like, oh, we're on a big ball of dung. Like it's, there's some thought there. So what does that have to do with aliens? What we get from Genesis and Christian theology is the idea that within us is what? The image of God. Well, what is the image of God? Where I've been thinking lately as I get, I guess, increasingly kind of theologically orthodox, which makes my inner skeptic kind of wretch a little bit, but (laughs) I am who I am. And what we see there is what is the image of God? The image of God is the power to create with intention, right? So what, what makes us different from so many other animals on the planet. We have a unique capacity to co-create the world with God and are given the freedom to do so. And the question is, what are we going to do with that image? Are we going to pick up the work of God revealed through Christ of creating shalom and peace? Are we going to embody a Christ energy? Or are we going to go against a peace and therefore denote an anti-Christ divine image. That lets me believe in the same way the Scriptures were written, completely in line with a cosmological understanding of that day, no one had ever thought of another planet because no one had ever thought of a planet. So you couldn't talk about beings on another planet. It would literally be incomprehensible to the people who wrote the first five books of the Bible. But if we think in terms of the image of God, is it possible that there are other beings in the cosmos that have the power to co-create along with the divine? Sure. And I think they would face the same choice. Do they do a creation, which is of Christ, or antichrist? Do they try to create a universe of, of more peace, more justice? more righteousness, or do they try to win everything, right? I mean, that's the question. And uh, I think in that way, when we try to read Genesis more like the people who lived in that time, it tells us more about God and not less. All right. So, with um, the new presidential all the way to the third country. question. I thought it would come faster than that, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> well, it's going to be it's going to be so closely related. Um, but he's a big advo- advocate for climate change, so we're going to talk about <laughs> climate a little bit. Um, so my question is, uh, it regards wind. And I was laying in bed the other night and had to turn the fan on, and came up with the question that why. Do fans cool us down? Why does wind yeah, sure. just naturally cool us down? Because in my mind, I would think it's you know creating friction. So you might even think that it might heat you up a little bit. Um, second question, you know, r- pretty easy. What is wind? <laughs> <laughs> I got to be real honest. When you opened with the election and climate change. I did not see the question going to ceiling fans keeping us cool, and what is wind? 
I'm real impressed because usually about the fourth word, I know the end of the question. So you kept me on pins and needles the whole time. Like I was spooling up climate studies and NASA funding and ceiling fans. Okay. Uh, Everything in the universe exhibits what we call hot body radiation. And I don't mean like hot body, like I've got a hot body. I mean... (laughs) Like, I've got a hot body. I think the dad bod's a thing now, right? So I'm good. But uh, what I mean is thermal energy is radiated from anything that has thermal energy. Um, So unless you cool something to absolute zero, it will emit photons. And uh, you're doing that right now. You can't see them because you can't see infrared light, but you can feel infrared photons, right? Your skin is photosensitive to infrared photons, but your retinas aren't. Have you ever thought about that? Like, your hands are technically retinas. So, it just makes me feel like an X-Man. Anyway, so, uh, the way cooling works in an atmosphere, it's different in space, but in an atmosphere is one, uh, your atoms are kind of jiggly, like my belly's jiggly, like they're dancing all the time, and they bump into other atoms and they release some energy, right? And another way that they cool is just by shooting photons out. The, the, the jiggly bumpy is a way faster way to transfer energy. And whatever um, you're transferring energy into is some kind of substance that will have a cooling or heat carrying capacity. So this is why, for example, water is so cold. You know what I mean? So if you get in 68 degree water, it feels very different to your body than 68 degree atmosphere, right? Because water has a very high thermal carrying capacity. And here's the other thing, humans are terrible thermometers. You don't actually have any absolute capacity to measure temperature. What you can measure is the rate of temperature change that's happening to you right now. So because heat is carried away quicker in 68 degree water than 68 degree atmosphere, 68 degree water like feels like 20 degree air or colder because it's just pulling heat away from your body really, really fast. So why does a ceiling fan help cool you down? Turn your car on. Don't do this. (laughs) Do this as a thought experiment. I just realized a bunch of people, that someone on the internet will literally do it and send me an invoice. So turn your car on and disable the water pump. Right? The water pump's job is to pump water from the engine block out to the radiator and back. Why is it called a radiator? It radiates heat. That's its job, right? It's got a large metal surface, so lots and lots of photons can get away. Uh, and lots of atomic jiggling can happen with a conductor, which is the um, metal casing of the radiator. If you turn the water pump off, well, the water still has the same carrying capacity that it did a moment ago, so why does your engine explode? <laughs> Because we've stopped the convection, the movement of the system that allows heat energy to be transferred out into the atmosphere, right? So when you turn on a fan, you're basically turning on 
a bit of a water pump, but it's an atmosphere pump. And you're, you're forcing convection, which is temporarily slightly increasing the thermal carrying capacity near your skin. That's why a fan really works best if you're like, like a, believe me, we know this in Florida. Like in August, fan on high, whole family standing right under it looking like this. <sighs> right? Because it's a gazillion degrees with all the humidity, right? Um, and so that's why a fan feels good. It actually does more effectively cool your body. It is not changing the temperature of the air at all. In fact, the irony is, actually slightly increases the temperature of the room. It just increases the thermal carrying capacity. Now, what is wind? Moving air. <laughs> so my dad used to like wind me up on car trips because he'd go, son, what is wind? I'd go, dad, it's moving air. He's like, why does the air move? I'm like, because you have a different temperature differential between different points on the Earth's surface, which causes movement as you get temporal differentials that move up into the atmosphere. Duh. <laughs> and he'd say, well, roll down the window. I'd put my hand out of the window. I'd say, yeah. He'd say, is that wind? I was like, no. We're moving. The atmosphere is relatively static. He's like, but it feels like wind. How's that possible, science kid? Like, and he would do this <laughs> for hours. So I would like get the encyclopedia when I got home and like exhaustively research wind and atmospheric dynamics. So on the next car ride, I, could, I just realized my dad literally turned me into Science Mike. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Okay. Hi. Hi. So, my name is Megan. Um, so I just wanted to give a little bit of background. I'm a physician. I don't work here in Grand Haven or even in Michigan, um, but I work for this really wonderful department of people uh, who care a lot about the most vulnerable populations among us, both locally and abroad. So um, our department has set up clinics for the homeless, for um, transgendered persons, um, for migrant workers who are undocumented. Um, and, and I'm just very lucky to work with such inspiring, passionate, motivated, kind of tireless people. And yet, kind of since the election, and I will say our department grieved a lot after the election, mostly because we were just worrying about the homeless and the undocumented and uh, the transgendered persons that we all know and care for. Um, I just, I haven't seen as much of that passion and energy, and I've kind of felt that too. Um, you know, I, I seem to have this like roller coaster of emotions where you know, one day, like yesterday, you know, I can't get off the couch to go to a party to make signs for the women's march happening in my home, or in the town where I live, um, you know, let alone take five minutes to write a letter to my congressman. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of days, and I might be trying to rally everyone to, you know, start a letter writing campaign. Um, and so my question ends up being kind of two parts. Uh, so one is, is there some either neurologic or social science reason for why some days I seem to be that kind of like apathetic, you know, belly up, waving the white flag of surrender, like there's nothing I can do, so I'm not going to do anything. And other days I am just so completely driven and passionate and trying to fight for those who don't have a voice. Mm -hmm. 
And kind of the second question is, if there is a reason, is there like some sort of trick? Like, can I, can I convince myself to engage? Can I, can I, you know, rise up and write like I'm running out of time? And <laughs> um, you know, can I, can I motivate myself to act? And, and yeah. can I then, you know, motivate those around me to act? Awesome. Uh, rise up when you're living on your knees. You rise up. Tell your sister that she's going to... Okay, so, sorry, little little Hamilton moment. It's involuntary. Um, trauma has to be grieved. If you are a Republican who's very excited about our current president, great. You can't tell other people what traumatized them. Doesn't work. Doesn't get, doesn't get rid of it. Doesn't help. Actually, psychologically speaking, makes it worse. I know a lot of Republicans who grieved for like eight years that Barack Obama was the president. I live in the Deep South. I mean, there were literally people who stayed in the anger phase of grief over the election of Barack Obama for eight years. And I did not, like, deny their anger. They were angry. It wouldn't do any, any good for me to say, your anger has no validity. I would usually say, tell me about it. I mean, I'm also a conflict-averse, peacemaking personality, so part of that's my own, like, <laughs> illness. But uh, I'd say, tell me about it. So right now, first of all, like, like give yourself, there's no, you can't do like a, a project plan for grieving. <laughs> it's like, all right, so I'm going to take. 48 minutes today to grieve, 22 minutes tomorrow, 11 minutes Friday, then I'm going to be good. It's not how brains work. It's not how people work. It's how physicians work. That's true. You have a lot of patience, right? That's why, like, therapist model is different. <laughs> it's like, I'll see you next week. How long is this going to take? I don't know and you don't know. I'll see you next week. <laughs> and I say that as someone who literally goes to therapy, I was like, so how many sessions do you think here? It's up to you. It's up to me. Well, I mean, it's up to your subconscious. How do you know that's a thing? <laughs> it's great to be Science Mike's therapist. I'm going to need a paper to support that claim. Um, oh, man, I'm a terrible person. Anyway, so the first thing is sometimes you just, like, uh, mope around. But the other thing is, and I understand this through psychology, if, if you're grief is trauma-related, you have to remove the source of the trauma to start healing. And here's what we tend to do right now. We read Twitter all day long. Like, we still get our work done. We're like, I do this job, okay, I have eight minutes, I have eight seconds to rest. I'll check my timeline. Oh, my God! He did what? And what's happening? You're just releasing toxic sludge and neurotransmitters into your brain. You're releasing stress hormones, and you are deepening and not releasing neurological trauma. I don't know if you've checked out at Mike McCarg since the election. I'm only on Twitter like once a day. I do all my tweeting, then I'm out. I'm not continually, because I got in this dark place. I was like, oh my gosh. Like, this is it. I, 
in 10 months, we're all going to be dead. (laughs) It's over. Like, I think I'll just stop paying the mortgage. (laughs) Why? I mean, I'll just, you know, we'll just go to L.A. I guess when the bombs fall, I'm going to be sitting next to the Gungers and yeah, okay. And that's, that's a real helpful place for transformation, is resolute conviction that all life is almost over. I was like, maybe I'm grieving. So then the response might be uh, avoidance. That's not healthy either. I can't just pretend nothing's happening. I mean, I can. I'm a straight white male. What's going to happen to me? Like, probably lower taxes. You know what I mean? Uh, That's probably what the next four years have in store for me. So I could put my head in the stand, but that would be a very not Christ energy to embody in my life. So I still have to stay informed, and I still have to stay active, but I have to do so in a way that still keeps me a relatively healthy, effective human being. Because this podcast doesn't help if every week I turn on the microphone and weep into it and do nothing else. Like ratings just down, down, down until it's nothing but other people who cry all the time, which like could be cathartic. Um, But I mean like how many thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people's minds we're shifted because we did a podcast on LGBTQ? Like, the people who say the Twitter, the internet stuff doesn't matter, it does, it works. If you do it well, you can actually substantively shift conversations, but to do that, you got to take care of yourself. So I read the news once a day, which is plenty. Like, if something happens... Between when I read the newspaper in the morning and the next morning, me not knowing till the next morning doesn't change anything. You know what I mean? Like if some conflict erupts in the Middle East, I can just know the next day. Like I want, you know, people in national security positions to get briefed multiple times a day, but not me. Like that doesn't do anything. So I'm controlling the cycle with which I consume news and information. So I'm removing the source of trauma. What am I doing in response? I go outside a lot. I just walk without my cell phone. Have you tried this? It's incredible. (laughs) Now, I get it, like, you might not be able to do that for a few months because you live in Michigan, but a lot of people in Radio Land are in the Sun Belt, and like me, they can go out all year. But my point is, I take times, and a lot of times I go home, I take my iPhone, and I put it on my nightstand, and I'll leave it there like literally all day. And oh, man. So what have I done? It's accelerated my grieving process. Now stuff still happens, and I go, oh my gosh. But because I'm not stuck at the bottom of the worst part of the grief cycle, my response is not we're doomed. My response is, how can I help? How can I help? What can I do? Here's another thing. We're all equipped with gifts, and the Bible was really smart (laughs) in describing the church as the body of Christ and, and giving very lengthy passages devoting 
everybody saying, no, it's best to be an eye, or it's best to be a foot, or, you know, if I can't be an eye, I don't want to be a part of it at all, right? Like, this is a smart line of reasoning, because we're understanding sociologically that social change movements require multiple approaches. Some people have to be loud and angry and scary or nothing happens, right? We have a real tendency, especially middle-class white people, to be like, whoa, you can't be angry. That's not cool. Because if we got angry, we got put in time out because, like, we're super white. And <laughs> right, that's just a, that's a white thing. Like, we don't, like, you go to white church services. We all just kind of sit there, kind of chill. That's what we do, right? Right, like, that's, like, that's a really not white thing to do right now. Like, you moved your hands. Right? What? Don't call attention to yourself. You're inviting the devil, you know? I mean, so... <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. You guys have all grown up in church, or some of you have. That's why you're here. The other viewer didn't grow up in church and wondering what's wrong with the rest of us, and that's why you listen. So some people have to be the angry ones. They have to be the ones who say, we will not tolerate this. And don't let yourself be the white person telling a person of color their anger doesn't belong in the conversation. Because their anger is the reason you know what Selma, Alabama is. So some people have to be the angry voices, but other people need to be the translators. I'm way better at talking about racism with people who live in rural America than some of the more outspoken advocates. Why? Because I can understand their discomfort because I have felt it before and sometimes feel it today. Some people need to be the kind of people that hold clipboards and say, okay, you're good at talking to people, you're good at getting press, I'm going to get you an interview, and they, they organize something, they make it happen. The clipboard people are essential. And other people are really good at going into a courthouse with a petition or standing in front of a court of law and getting legal decisions to happen, and it takes everybody. And the problem is we tend to think whatever approach we do best is the best or right one, or worse, the one we're comfortable receiving, and it takes it all. So one of the best things you can do as you move through grief is figure out what your image of God looks like. In what way are you uniquely created to go forward and create peace and justice and righteousness in the world? If I could lean into my (laughs) evangelical background a little bit, folks, that's the gospel That's the good news. It's not convincing people to say a speech. It's not convincing people to accept a set of propositions. It's going out into the world, being broken for others as Christ was broken for us. And I have found, sitting in that, it's dark sometimes, but the realness of a life that first acknowledges and then addresses suffering is gratifying in a way 
that a comfortable job in advertising and a good salary wasn't. I might even say that I feel born again. All right, um, back when you were talking about infrared, so I recently in the last three years started working at a job where I actually clock in with my hand. So they utilize infrared, I believe, but I don't quite understand the process of what that might be. Um, I'm wondering first, do have you like, do you know about this type of technology or are you aware of it? Just like, yeah. They read your fingerprint or your handprint? Yeah, your handprint. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's I, believe, I believe like the two first fingers, like, I believe it's certain fingers particularly. Biometric authentication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, Beautiful. yeah. Yeah, so um, I'm wondering what you Pretty easy to trick, actually. <laughs> what? It's pretty easy to trick, but go ahead. <laughs> like, you're, whoever invested in that was like, you know what? It's okay if someone tricks the system, no big deal. They didn't actually, but a vendor lied to them. Anyway, go ahead. Well, I was wondering your opinion on the technology and its effects on the human body, like the human system as an electrical system, as a, you know, this holistic system that all works together and, mm -hmm. yeah. I was wondering your opinion on that. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, most biometric systems are harmless. They're passive systems that uh, receive data. Uh, so you're going to emit the photons anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's not like they're stealing some of your photons. Uh, and d depending on the system, they usually use some sort of camera array, and they look for unique markers. Um, but like a lot of them can be tricked with like a piece of tape in someone else's finger, right? Like they're not really advanced stuff. Um, pegs. Pegs that stick up that your fingers connect to. So it's not like a little window that looks kind of red, and you put your finger on it. No, it's it, you like stick your hand into it, and your palm does meet a platform. But I don't believe the platform reads it. I think it's the pegs that stick up. And that's that, pegs that stick out. So they could be doing a capacitive or inductive reading as a biomarker, okay. which would be really, really imprecise. I'm not familiar with that technology. It sounds like a terrible idea, but I'm not an engineer. <laughs> it won't hurt you. I just think it would be really easy to fool, or you could drink. Uh, too many electrolytes, and it say it's not you, or you could like gain some weight, and it'll say it's not you. You know what I mean? Like any kind of uh, transdermal current analysis tends to yield wildly inconsistent results. Now I'm puzzled. Anyway, no, it should be fine. Even some of them will run a small current through your body. It's it's a very similar amount of current that would your own nerves would generate, right? Uh, which leads me to like maybe where we should go with this question. What kind of radiation or information harms your body? Because this, this comes up a lot. So a while ago, they put all these machines in airports that could take a picture of you naked with your clothes on. And a lot of people wouldn't go in them for privacy concerns. Let's be honest. I could use some body shame. I don't have any. I'll proudly march into a machine that reveals me naked. I don't care. But I wouldn't go in the machine, and so I always uh, opted for the manual pat-down. It's a very intimate experience. I don't know if you've had this. Um, I mean, I've heard it's very similar to a, like a massage you can get in some kinds of businesses. But uh, it's like, hey, I, you said you were going to touch my inner thigh. That's not my inner thigh. Uh, you, you haven't had this? 
I'm the only one? I've had it repeatedly. Anyway, so I wouldn't go in the machines. But now I go in the machines all the time. I don't even, I don't even care. Let's do this, right? What's the difference? The wavelength of the radiation. When the machines first came out, they were blasting you with low doses of X-rays. X-ray is a form of radiation that is ionizing. What does ionizing mean? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a particle that, like a cue ball, flies through your body and occasionally hits the... I, I'm not a sports guy. What do you call the, th- the triangle with the things, that, the balls in them? The rack. Yeah, it hits the rack. Only now the rack's your DNA. Which is why ionizing radiation increases your risk of cancer. It's physics. So they were like, it's a low dose of X-radiation. X-ray risk for cancer is a function of cumulative exposure. So I'm like, I'm not getting in that. And they said, no, but it's safe. And I carried with me a printed letter from uh, the American Metal Association. American Metal Association. <laughs> oh! No X-rays! No, uh, no, the American Medical Association. Uh, internet, I was headbanging. So the American Medical Association would said, like, we don't think this is safe. We understand medicine. And now, now it's millimeter wave radiation, which I don't care. Why? It's non ionizing. Your cell phone is harmless. The sun is dangerous. So if you're like, I'm not going to hold my cell phone near my head, but you go outside and get sunburned, you need to learn physics. (laughs) Because ultraviolet radiation is ionizing. So what are you looking for in systems that could be harmful? They use some form of ionizing radiation, right? I carry my cell phone all the time, no worries. Now, I don't climb cell phone towers (laughs) because at this amplitude, those frequencies are no big deal. At the amplitude they come out of the cell phone tower, they're ionizing, right? So all you got to look out for. So as long as your biometric systems at work are non-ionizing radiation, you're good. If they're ionizing radiation, use it a couple times and then sue them and retire. (laughs) I'm just kidding. All right, so as we study what it means to be human, especially male and female, um, I think we find that there is a much greater gray area than there are sharp distinctions. Uh, And listening to you speak in past times, I've never heard you... Uh, reference uh, the idea of genetic Adam and Eve, uh, that all females can trace a genetic, a similar genetic ancestor, and yeah. all men, men can trace a similar genetic ancestor, both of which lived several thousand miles apart and several hundred thousands of years apart. Yes. Uh, I'm curious if you could talk, and especially through that data, what are helpful ways to talk about the distinction of male and female? Oh, wow. Most of the time, male and female is fine. Language. So that's, that's where you have to start. Like, for most organisms that 
can mentally understand a concept like male or female, of which we know one species that can do that, us, in case someone's confused, which one is it? <laughs> Humans can like assign a gender label to themselves. Other animals don't do that. Other animals are just like, I could use some genital stimulation. <laughs> Who's down? You know, that's kind of how, how it works. They don't have like a social consciousness. Uh, so, but we go, I'm male, and then like we have a bunch of systems that reinforce that, right? Like primary, secondary sex characteristics, uh, tonal voice, there's a, a collection of things. And if you, if you were to identify those as biological traits and then uh, graph their expression, you would find like bell curves of maleness and femaleness. And what we understand now is that those bell curves overlap. There's an area of ambiguity in the middle. And what we've done socially, culturally, for as long as we've really had cultures, if someone's in the gap, we uh, push them to one end or kill them. As social primates, uh, we tend to enforce some conformity to norms that we feel benefit the our group, our troop. I would, I'm not even going to go tribe because we're not going to go that far. We're talking troop right now. Chimps do it too. If a, if a, if a young chimpanzee is born and expresses some extreme degree of what they would perceive as deformity, uh, many male chimps will just go ahead and take care of that, right? Uh, so we are, we are primates. We're prone to those kind of behaviors. But luckily, we're hopefully... We've been developing morality and ethics, which means we have to imagine in any situation, how would I feel if that was me, right? That's the root of ethical systems. How would I feel if that's me? And what we're finding more and more is if I found myself in the middle of those overlapping bell curves, I would not like the way society handles that. But when we talk genetically male and female, we really simplify the data set to X chromosome, X chromosome is a data set we call female. X chromosome, Y chromosome is a data set we call male. And there, there are more options, right? It, it has happened that you have people who have two X chromosomes and they develop male features. The opposite is also possible but less likely. You can have additional, you have XXY, you have extra Y chromosomes. There's all sorts of situations. This would be a 40-minute answer if I went into all of them. Let's just admit, but those are statistically small enough. They don't play a big, a big part when we study inheritable genetics because we don't pass them on. If you have an extra, you only get to like moms get to contribute one chromosome unless something happens. Dads get to contribute one chromosome always one, unless I'm completely misremembering. I'm fairly comfortable. I'm 80% comfortable with that claim. Um, and so that's not, if, if we're studying the inheritability factor, looking at variations from XX and XY isn't helpful because it doesn't follow normal genetic patterns. So that's what gets us to looking at genetic ancestry for males and females. And when we look at those um, intersections, we are doing big data analysis. 
So we're looking at gene distribution where it occurs, sampling as many people as we ha can get to get a bigger database, and then making numerically based assumptions about time period and location. And using that approach, when you hear something like this individual here at this time, this individual here, that's with the data we've got so far. As you add more people, your data gets better. And when you hit the jackpot and you find ancient human remains that still have genetic material, it really refines your data set. So when you hear a finding like that, what you're hearing scientists say is with the data we have, with the number of samples we've taken, the statistically most likely single point of common ancestry is about this time and about this place. And the papers describe that with really great fidelity. And the media goes, Eve lived in Montana in 1921. And what? Because, like, it's better, it's better news. Like, ooh, that'll be exciting. I mean, they don't really, but it's always, you know, some part of typically the Middle East or Africa and in a time period. But they're not, scientists weren't saying, like, we've got it. We found the person. They're we're saying we found an interesting intersection in our data set. And the reason we don't have a common lineage for all men and women is so far we haven't collected DNA from every single human being. And I'm not sure we should. <laughs> because apparently governments can change directly and quickly. Um, and I'm just not sure you want anyone to have all the human DNA. Um, you know, because, what? Never mind. No, I'll say it. Because you can do stuff with DNA samples, right? Like, because if you've got DNA, we have machines now that can print DNA. And so, if, you know, it would make the criminal justice system a real bear. You'd be like, no, we have your DNA on the murder weapon and this murder weapon and that murder weapon in five countries. You're like, I've never left my house. Well, we've got the DNA. Like, so that's a little bit conspiracy. Th that's a lot conspiracy theorist. <laughs> my point is to get better data, I'm not sure it's a cost. It would be really expensive to sample everyone's DNA. Wow. We'd literally have to, like, make significant global economic investment in machines to sequence DNA. Like, it's just a huge problem. So that's, that's why you see that disparity in the data. Long-time listener to both Liturgist and your science, Mike. Um, but your black and white Racism in America Liturgist podcast um, changed a lot for me personally, um, and I've tried to convince other people I know to get in on it and, and listen to it as well. Recently with MLK Day on Monday, I had someone share something on Facebook that I, you know, it's Facebook, you're going to disagree about everything pretty much. It's not the place for confrontation. Um, that being said, how do you respond to somebody and what goes on neurologically and in your brain and, and what does science say about responding to somebody who says, well, MLK would have said, all lives matter and so would have Jesus. Because that's literally what somebody said. And it got to my core because that, that's not it. I mean, I just, but can you talk about what goes on in my mind as a social change advocate, as someone who, who wants 
social justice, but also as somebody who wants to love that other person to help them see maybe the error of their ways, or maybe I'm not saying that right, but Mm -hmm. talk about why they feel that way comparative to why I feel that way and where we can meet in the middle. Awesome. Thanks for your question. I'm not going to go neuroscience because I would have to overgeneralize neuroscience research to give you a useful answer. So we'll go one layer up to cognitive science if that's okay. Um, The first thing I remember in all social media interactions is neither God nor evolution designed the human brain to be something that seeks truth. There is not a human being alive who is objectively searching for truth half the time. Not one. Your brain is a machine that builds a map of the world by throwing stuff away. Your senses bring in more information than you could possibly handle and make meaningful decisions on, so you have tons of systems whose job is to sort out the, what, 5 8% of what you're perceiving at any moment that gets presented to the parts of the brain that make decisions. We call that consciousness. My Twitter bio says that I'm 86 billion neurons telling a story to themselves. That's how I define consciousness. Your brain's telling a story. You're the hero of that story. You're the, you're the protagonist. You're the action hero. Like, you're the first one on screen. And anyone who's against you is what? The bad guy. Then your brain presents the world that way to you. Why? Because it wants you to get the food. Someone wants to stop you from getting the food, it's time to go Arnold, right? Like, I'm getting the food. Your brain wants you to find shelter and safety, which for a social mammal means what? Finding a community you fit into. So our brains are obsessed with our social rank and fitting in with who we identify with and who we feel is like us. So why do you and your friends see things differently? Because you're social animals who identify as part of different groups. And then your brain wants you to find sex. Your brain is a huge fan of sex because your brain is just a tool your DNA uses to try to make copies of itself in one model of biology, right? The only reason you have a brain is to find food. The only reason you find food is to make copies of your DNA. That's the biological impetus. Um, so some of us, like literally, why do we look like we won the Facebook fight? So it looks like we maintained or grew our social standing so we can replicate our DNA. Like it's that ridiculous. That's what's happening on Facebook. It's, it's the human version of this. Internet, I uh, impersonated a gorilla. Okay, so... Like, that's what's happening. Because on the one hand, you care about the plight of these people. But on the other hand, you care about the plight of those people because part of the way your brain maps social reality is it realizes they're a set of the 
entities you're attracted to who care about those people. It was like, I care about those people too. How's it going? Right? Like, I know that's a really cynical view of humanity, but sometimes we have to strip away the artifice to see our motivations. So confirmation bias is a huge part. The cascade uh, availability effect is a cognitive bias. When you hear things over and over, you believe them. Guess what social media is doing? Computers are figuring out what you like to hear and telling you over and over and simplifying your view of reality. That's what's happening. So they are literally presented with a different view of the world by machines than you are. Why do I want to say this? Because we have to acknowledge that. It is happening to them, but it's also happening to you. There's a great statistic I saw about the prevalence of uh, fake news sharing among people who I self-identify as conservative. I don't remember the number. It was somewhere in the 45 to 55% range of acceptance and resharing. In the same study, it said for people who identify as liberal, it was like 20 or 25%. And all my liberal friends started sharing it and were like, yay, liberals! I was like, hold on! One in four is a terrible statistic. <laughs> one in four is a good shot. You're one of the people sharing fake news. And by the way, did you check for the source of that study before you shared it? Because it might be fake news, right? That's where we're at in the world. It's cognitive science. We are trying to fit in socially without losing rank. But, but yes, part of that is sometimes our eyes get open to the plight of the hurt of others. Why do your eyes get open to the plight of the hurt of others? Usually you get hurt really bad. Why am I so nuts about like justice issues? Mainly because I was bullied so bad as a kid and I know what it's like to be at the bottom of the pyramid. It's not because I'm a good person. It's I've suffered a lot. Now one thing that can help people See the world from the perspective of another without suffering themselves is a really good story. 20 years ago, very, 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 very few people supported the right for someone to marry a person of a gender that they chose. Very few. And then in like three and a half years, we hit a tipping point. Why? Storytelling. How? YouTube. It gets better. Famous people, influential people got on YouTube. They shared their experience with suffering and how they learned to cope, and a bunch of straight people watched it. YouTube let us see firsthand the stories of other people's experiences, and why does that matter? If your consciousness is a story the brain tells itself, science shows us that when you hear a story, your brain steps out of your shoes and into the other person's. Why do you love to read Harry Potter? Because for a little while in your brain, you are Harry Potter, which is awesome. Like, I really want to, like, I would say I want a wand. I have a wand. I have two wands. <laughs> I, have a, I have the elder wand, the most powerful wand. And then I also have a wand I got at Universal Studios because it's got a skull on it. It's not in the movies, but it has a skull on it. 
and it's got this little infrared light, and you can walk around Universal Studios and cast spells, and it's awesome. <laughs> I had to go like Wingardium Leviosa and do this, and like a feather star. You're like, what just happened? <laughs> what a time to be alive. And you like that because for a while in the story, you were Harry Potter. And studies are showing reading Harry Potter actually like changes the way people see the world. There's a measurable difference in the way Harry Potter fans relate to justice issues than the general population, because stories change people. So what do you do on Facebook? You tell stories. Like the thing we want to do is to dig in and to win and to convince, but instead you go, tell me more about how you, why you feel like that. And you really listen. And then you ask genuine questions about what they said. And then when you feel like you have an understanding of what they said, then you say, well, I have a friend who, and their life is. And if what you say is true, it would mean for them, how, what would we do about that? And you treat them like an expert. And when you treat them like an expert, their cognitive defenses stay down, their amygdala stays quiet, and while they're doing that, you get to mess with the firmware of their brain to manipulate them to be the person you'd like them to be. <laughs> I have some experience with this. I do it every week. Hi. Um, so I have kind of maybe a follow-up to that question and to the election question that the woman asked earlier. Okay. Um, so taking it out of Facebook into real life. Mm -hmm. um, so I follow you on Twitter, and I've seen some of the things you posted on Twitter, and I, I've heard you and uh, Michael Gunger talk about the election um, since it happened. And so my question for you would be, I know there are people in this church who voted both ways in the election, and I... I'm That's not legal. They can only vote one way or the other. <laughs> well, you know no, what I mean. <laughs> Um, I'm hoping your question will address people regardless of how they vote in the election, yes. is, is how I'm saying. I, I hope the last one did, too. I, like, I that would did. also be a handbook for hacking liberals as much <laughs> as hacking conservatives, but go ahead. For sure. Um, so, I, I think, just, I'm sure there are other people who have experienced this, but I... This has been like a really difficult election for me personally, mm -hmm. um, and I'm normally an optimistic and cheerful person, and I've found that I have become pessimistic and angry and contemptuous towards people who voted differently than me. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that I've tried to challenge myself about and would like to change, but it's difficult. Um, so my question for you would be, uh, one, if you could talk about a little bit about tribalism um, mm -hmm. and the science of tribalism and mm -hmm. maybe how you break out of that. Um, and two, maybe there are some experiences from your own life, but for people, regardless of how we voted, I have close family members and friends who I still have difficulty forgiving for how they, for how they voted and the same, same towards me. Yeah. Um, and I, I would like to either find a way to compartmentalize or to move past that. This is the first election I can really recall that sort of hard line being drawn. Um, and it, it just made it really challenging, and I wondered if you could share any experiences that you've had of being able to sort of transcend and reconnect with people who feel differently than you politically. Yeah, it's really hilarious that you asked me how to transcend and then you reference what I do on Twitter, which these days I would hardly call transcending. Um, I, I mean, I don't know what happens to me on Twitter. I get pretty, like, 
pretty not me. Honestly. And there's a really weird thing where the more not me I am, the more little hearts and retweets happen. Like, I don't know, when my followers on Twitter love, like, I work real, like, okay, you've heard me say I work hard like and say all these things that are kind of bumbling. Do you know I do that on purpose to be approachable? That's literally a subroutine I've created in my brain. You notice I'm not doing it right now. Everything I do is so manufactured because since I was a little kid, I've trained my consciousness to act like a computer. And so it's kind of, it's, I emulate a lovable goofball, which kind of become real in me, but it's, it's an emulated thing. And I've noticed that when on Twitter, when I turn that off and I unleash the fullness of what I'm capable of in a cutting wit, people love it. I could make so much money as an angry liberal media mouthpiece. Like the like the left of the left and Coulter, which ironically would have to be a guy. So um, <laughs> right, because it's odd. It's anyway, it's a, same way in Coulter, like, oh, you're against your anyway, so <laughs> I'm a woman who hates feminism. Cool. Um <laughs> So I'd be a man who hates patriarchy. Oh, wow. I'm getting really into that. But my point is, like, I caught myself. The stakes feel different, don't they? I was really miffed when GW got the presidency. I wasn't like a Gore nut, though. Like, I just thought, like, in some ways, Gore's a bit preferable. But I didn't feel like the, the country would stop if W won. Do you know what I mean? Like, it feels different this time. Even last time, like, tell me Mitt Romney wouldn't have been like a super average president. Just like right down the middle. (laughs) Like, no one would have been surprised a single time in four years by something Mitt Romney did or said. I don't think we would be marching in the streets if Mitt Romney would have won that election. So let's, I just feel like we have to acknowledge there is something that feels different this time to an incredible swath of the country. I mean, I made jokes with my rural relatives about Obama-Romney. I stopped talking to my rural relatives relatives over Trump. How can you support a man like this? Do you know any black people? Any one black person? Do you know any Asian Americans? Do you know any Latinos or or Hispanic people? Do you know any of the people who will be affected by this man's policies? Do you have a gay friend? How can you do this? And I became so worried, so fearful about what Trump would do that I understood my own family as being outside of my tribe. Here's the thing about tribalism. 
you can't turn it off. You are going to be tribal. You're a social mammal. It's a book I read I really enjoyed called Consciousness and the Social Brain that made it the argument that there's literally no such thing as an individual human consciousness. It does not exist. How do you know that? Take a human being and completely isolate them for an extended period of time. The consciousness breaks down. The system turns in on itself. It is not good for man to be alone or woman. (laughs) So the trick is not to turn off tribalism, which is an innate part of human consciousness, but to ever increase your conception of who the tribe is. Several years ago, I stood on a beach at night and saw an incredibly bright light that surrounded me and made me feel the love of God, which was not the best thing. The best thing was a moment later when I felt God's love for everyone. And in that moment, my tribe became every single person. And I was different. I was literally different. I came home, and no one knew what had happened. But people who didn't even know me that well would say, you're so, what has happened? You're so different. And uh, I've been squandering that gift ever since. Right? Slowly letting the tribe shrink and shrink and shrink. And frankly, I can understand how African Americans could say, I will not stand for this, and if you support Trump, you're against me. It's pretty reasonable. I can understand how my gay and lesbian, bisexual, trans, and queer friends could say, if you support Donald Trump, You deny my right to be who I am, and I can't be a part of that. But if everyone does that, the end of that road is civil war. And uh, (laughs) progressive will lose a civil war. None of us know how to fight. We don't own guns. I mean, what do you think, 20 minutes? I mean, if the South rises again, we're done. I mean, I've watched my cousins kill, skin, and carry whole deer back to their pickup trucks. I wouldn't fight any of them. So there's got to be another way, and that other way is for me to take advantage of my societal position of privilege as a middle-class, white, straight, dare I say Protestant male. Uh, That means there's a lot of rooms where I'm allowed in without changing the dynamic of the room. My presence doesn't put anyone on guard. And it means I can respond to some things differently. Because for me, it's a matter of empathy and not personal cost. That racist joke 
does not actually affect me personally. But that doesn't mean I should take the temptation to say nothing. It means I have the luxury to take a moment and calculate what is the most thoughtful, effective, possible response to that moment. I am convicted I don't have the luxury of cutting a single person off. Not one. Why? Because I got a head start in life. I didn't have to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I was born wearing nice boots. You know what I mean? I was born standing. I was born 10 miles in to an 11-mile race. And if I, don't, if I don't do something with that, I'm part of the problem. I'm part of the system. I'm part of the oppression. So, I, uh, I refollowed a bunch of people on Facebook. And then I went through and hid Fox News. So I could follow the person, and they could share Fox News all they want, and I don't see it, but I still comment on that picture when they're in the yard playing with their son. I say, I miss you guys, right? And you start reestablishing some social dynamic because I'm not a missionary, <laughs> I'm family. And then as that happens, uh, this holiday season, I had more difficult in-person conversations about racism about feminism, about LGBTQ rights, about immigration than I've ever had in my life. And I listened a lot. Did race play a role in this election? Well, of course it did. Race has played a role in every election since 1776. Hillary Clinton was just a better adversary for black Americans than Donald Trump. She wasn't like a, someone who would actually get the job of racial justice done in this country. I mean, I could say George Carlin's forbidden words and get less flack for that than if you say the word reparations in America. That's a word that'll put a room into total silence. For those of us who have the privilege, it is our job to continue to expand our conception of tribe. But the reason I included that disclaimer is the last thing we should do as people of privilege is to tell someone at a more marginalized intersection that they must also expand their notion of tribe prescriptively, right? So if you're at the exact same intersection as me, Able-bodied, middle-income, straight, white, male, I'm talking to you. <laughs> but I'm not actually talking to you because sexism plays a different role in your life than it does mine. And there might be some people for whom it is psychologically costly for you to include in, in your conception of tribe. So I'm telling you what I'm up to, and whatever you can glean from that that's useful, you're welcome to. Thank you.
In past episodes, when asked by listeners who are wondering why some people have spiritual encounters along the lines of your beach experience, while others may desperately want a God encounter but come up empty-handed, you briefly mentioned the God gene and the telogen absorption scale. I have had spiritual encounters on a fairly frequent basis my whole life, and when I hear these questions, I freak out and want to know what's happening in my own brain. (laughs) Yeah. So I was wondering if you could provide a deeper dive into those topics, and particularly if life experience can impact telogen absorption, Uh what kind of life events tend to leave that kind of change? Ooh. You can just drop the mic with that question. Wow, no need to hand it back. Even if I can't get there, that's, that's a fun question. There's multiple types of neurological spiritual experiences. First, a mystical experience like mine is a state of hyper-connection between all different parts, most of the brain, that is extraordinarily similar to what happens when someone takes mushrooms. It just doesn't last nearly as long, and you don't take mushrooms. Um, But in terms of a brain scan, very, 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 very similar effect. Um, But that's kind of like the the 10.0 on the Richter scale of spiritual experiences, and uh, they tend to be rare. But I'm like you. I still have like a lot of spiritual experiences. Uh, The telogen absorption scale was originally designed as a system to determine how likely someone, uh, how, how, yeah, if it, how easy they were to hypnotize. And when evaluated for that purpose, it wasn't actually predictive for how easy it is to hypnotize some, someone, which is hilarious. But in further research, it has been found to be predictive in your propensity to have spiritual experiences. And in research, that score can shift over time. Things that can shift your absorption score, frequent prayer and meditation, um, regular worship experiences, liturgical or, you know, Hillsong. Uh, I was trying to think of like a good word for like evangelical liturgy and all I could get was Hillsong. Um, <laughs> Heal my heart and make it clean. That's an old song. That's why I know it. So, um, that wasn't shade. I literally forgot where I was going with the answer, and it was good. Oh, yeah, and then trauma. Uh, recovery from grief can move your absorption scale. For, specifically, for example, they have found a correlation between men's absorption scale and the amount of warmth women describe those men as having. Fellas, lift your score. It helps. Uh, So, (laughs) brain hacking, that's what I was doing right there. So, um, so yeah, if you have a, if you, if you do things like that, you'll increase your score, you'll increase your propensity to have more frequent, more intense spiritual experiences, but some of us start out way ahead. Um, So, I talk about this in my best-selling book, Finding God in the Waves. (laughs) <laughs> available on sale here tonight, plus every books are sold, um, where you can imagine some people are genetically faster runners than other people. 
So if you're just like a naturally fast runner, I'm not. If you're a naturally fast runner and we both train the amount, same amount, we both eat the same amount, and we, we race, the genetically faster person will win. But if a genetically fast person is sedentary and a genetically slow person does the work, they can beat the natural gazelle. Uh, one of the best moments of my life was when I figured out I'm a runner and that I can run very slowly but consistently for a super long time. And I ran a 15K race, and this guy whizzed by me and said, when are you going to start running? I was like, oh, that's demoralizing, but I got some good jams, so I'm just going to keep running real slow. (laughs) And 14K into the 15K, I saw the gazelle. It looked like it had been mauled by a lion. (laughs) And so I just tortoised so proud. Because I'd been getting up at like 2 o'clock in the morning every Saturday and running for eight hours. Oh, hold on. You're like, whew, that's the best thing ever. If you run that much, you can go home, take a shower, go to Waffle House, order everything, (laughs) and lose five pounds. It's the best thing ever. 20,000 calorie, calorie debt for the day? Are you kidding me? I'm going to have pancakes and waffles and eggs and hash browns and just keep it coming. I'm here to lose weight. So I miss marathoning so much. But so you might be genetically more prone to spiritual experiences, and then you've matched that to practice. And when you do that, you become what I call a God-eyes person because you see God everywhere. Just all the time. Just God's dripping off of everything. The, the light of God is in everyone's face. Like it's a pretty day and you're just like, God is here. Can you all see it? And everybody's like, no, I don't see it. What is wrong with you? <laughs> it's six o'clock in the morning and I haven't had coffee, right? It's just, um, so that's telogen. And then you had one other thing, the God gene. So the God gene is, uh, that's good marketing, but a bad name. The God gene's level of expression controls the amount of a particular neurotransmitter you produce, which molecularly is similar to, uh, I could write it out, uh, but I can't ever say it, psilocybin, thank you, did I say that right? Okay, the stuff in mushrooms. Um, So, people have a very high expression of the God gene live their lives on a constant low dose of magic mushrooms. I'm serious. Like, neurologically, that's what's happening, and you can't get arrested for it. So, go religion, right? Um, but we, ha- we theorize that many people that have uh, been like prophets or saints probably had a high expression of the God gene because they saw God everywhere. Why? Because the world's like kind of magical. And... I honestly, like, I really, I keep saying this on the podcast because I know scientists listen to the show. I want to be tested for that gene because <laughs> I suspect I, I've got some expression. Because even when I was a little kid, just me and God all the time. I don't need to play with other kids. I'm talking to God right now. That's really weird if you think about it. So, Hi, Mike. My name is Mike also. 
but unlike you, I am an Episcopal priest. Right on. I grew up Jewish, and now I serve my diocese as the ecumenical and interfaith officer. I bring quantum physics to my ministry because quantum physics says that we are all one, just like the gospel does. And I wonder what you think about the discoveries in cosmology, gravity waves, mm -hmm. curved time and space. Stephen Hawking recently posed that the event horizon of a black hole captures all the data mm -hmm. of whatever goes into a black mm -hmm. hole. So I wonder what you think about how these things will inform our spiritual growth. Cool. Uh, rephrase, hey, Science Mike, what's your central idea about everything? <laughs> I often tell people that my theology is cosmology. Uh, that my favorite theologian is Carl Sagan. Um, which, like, some crowds are like, yeah, and other crowds are like, burn him. And um, <laughs> 2017, y'all. Um, cosmology says that if you roll the clock back, the expansion of space becomes a contraction. If you keep running the numbers backwards, the entire observable universe, some people just say universe and you get confused about what a universe is, so I'm being clear, the entire observable universe, as far as we can see in the night sky with the best telescopes, which happen to look in the microwave spectrum, all fits in the space of a sugar cube. Which is important, there is no Big Bang. That's a terrible name, because a bang makes you think of like a balloon that pops in a room. That's a bang. Or a firecracker that pops in the sky. The universe didn't pop into nothingness. The universe, which was already spatially infinite, started to expand. But it was already everywhere. So a better name, as Minute Physics says, would be the rapid expansion of the singularity. But can you imagine a TV show called <laughs> The Rapid Expansion of the Singularity? Those actors would be jobless. So <laughs> Big Bang Theory is good marketing. Um, but when you, when, you, when you roll it back and everything is that compressed, math breaks down. Everything gets weird. We find that the four fundamental forces of physics are one singular force. We find that there is no division between time and energy and space and matter. Everything is in a state of mysterious, timeless unity with the potential to create everything we see today. Hi, God. <laughs> I look in a singularity and I see God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, the oneness. And yet, you cannot say that a singularity has a plan for humanity or a plan for anything <laughs> or a consciousness or the ability to perceive things 
because those are all models for processing temporal reality, which does not exist in a singularity. So a singularity God is kind of deistic. <laughs> a deistic, like, unconscious, like, you, not even unconscious. Like, that's a ridiculous construct in a singularity. Consciousness, not conscious, both those things are temporally, and they make temporal assumptions. So, <laughs> rapid expansion happens. 13.8 billion years later, we're all hanging out in Grand Haven. And we what? We all feel the presence of God. The Trinitarian view would call that the Holy Spirit. And I find the Holy Spirit in a set of innate, pre-programmed inclinations for human beings to find God in the world and the cosmos no matter where they look, as documented by, you know, Oxford. <laughs> Not liberty, Oxford. Um, so, there's a God that creates, there's a God that dwells within us and our neurons and our synapses, and then there's a more mysterious God to me, a Christ, a Christ that invites all of this galaxies and planets and societies and cultures and militaries and economies and Baptist and Methodist and atheists into reconciliation with its origins. We call that the Christ. And where do I find the Christ in science? Absolutely nowhere. I only find the Christ in the incarnation through Jesus, which is why I'm a Christian and not just like a New Age spiritualist, or not just like a mindfully-minded atheist like Sam Harris, because what unlocks the mystery of the Godhead and the Spirit to me is only Jesus, who was the Christ. That's a really deeply unscientific idea, profoundly unscientific idea, so I do a weird thing for a Christian, I just admit that up front. <laughs> and I don't try to convince skeptics, here's why I can prove to you as a historical claim that there's an empty tomb, and if you don't agree with that, you're going to hell, bro. Like, that's not... I'm compelled to be an empty tomb. Like, we're, we're, we're too often in Protestant and American Catholicism, too obsessed with the, like, after we die, like, shiny game show reward, you got the big prize. And when I read the words of the Christ in the Gospels, uh, he keeps talking about bringing the kingdom of heaven near, not going there. And so what I find in Christianity is not a fascination of what happens when we die, but what happens when we live? And why do I make that a scientific claim? Because brain science tells me that when you believe God loves you, when you believe that what undergirds reality is not entropy but love, you can make irrational choices that are better for the world. You can take risks for people that don't pan out. And so I can't make a claim 
that Jesus was the Christ scientifically, but I can make a claim that me believing Jesus was the Christ changes me in a way that changes the world for the better, which is why we, the body of Christ, are called to not only be the body, but a body that walks out of a tomb. And that tomb is the way evolution has shaped us and trained us to primarily look out for ourselves and our descendants and our tribe. But Jesus says, no, it's, it's all nations. It's all people. So go ye therefore. I uh, have an educational background. Um, I mean, ch- um, early childhood education. I'm not a Christian ministries person, but I've worked a lot in different churches and Sunday schools. And I've found that oftentimes we have just sort of missed the mark in teaching young children about God. Like we've, we focus on the stories. And like one time I had to, I was supposed to do a, um, take a bunch of stuffed animals and do where Peter was told to kill and eat. And, and you know, so I'm supposed to pretend the Oh, I love churches. <laughs> and I said, okay, first of all, <laughs> anyways, I didn't do that because all the kids would remember was that I was pretending to kill stuffed animals. And uh, not that they were supposed to be loving to all people. Kids can play, kids play Call of Duty. They could probably handle it. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> they bunny hop. I mean, you know, never mind. That was too nerdy. <laughs> anyway. Um, and as a mom, too, how do I... So I, I'm trying to understand how to share my faith journey in a developmentally appropriate way yes. with understanding how the brain mm-hmm. develops. Great question. Uh, first of all, very soon there will be a continuation of... You remember the Liturgist podcast, The Other Side of the Mattress? With Jenny and Lisa, any of you hear that? Okay, it was about like how to use your marriage handle deconstruction. We did another one where we talked about what we did with our kids, and then like my kids are on that program talking about it from their perspective. So if you're like, what kids think about that transition? Mine would be happy to tell you. I don't know where they get that from. Uh, yeah, it's so funny. I go into church nursery rooms a lot of times, like because I talk in churches a lot. And, uh, like, I think my contract says I get, like, a green room. So, like, and churches take it, like, real serious. Because it's boilerplate from bands, really. Like, it doesn't apply. But anyway, so they make sure I have a green room. And a lot of times, like, in the nursery, I'm, like, downstairs next to a diaper pal, listening to all of you come in um, before the podcast. And, like, all the time, they have Noah's Ark. And they never have the people not on the ark screaming and wailing or drowning. I've just noticed that is omitted. From, there's, not like, there's not like the ark and the falling rains and then like thousands of corpses floating. There's just like a giraffe who's like, you know what I mean? Uh, internet, I smiled really broadly. Um, so why do we keep telling those Stories. Stories are actually the best way to teach young children. That's why we've done it. They're also the best way to teach adults. But like adults, for a while, you can talk at layers of abstractions, and some of us will follow for a while. 
although one of my favorite things in brain science uh, tells me that uh, adults spend a third of their time daydreaming. So at any given moment, a third of you are literally off in fantasy land. And you just come back and check in while another third of you take off. <laughs> and I just try not to worry about that. Like, so well, at least they're not on their phones. Um, but so stories turn our daydreaming machine off. It's the only thing that does. And for young children, young children can't understand abstractions like democracy. If you try to explain democracy to a three-year-old, no carrier, not happening. But you, like when my kids were little, uh, they knew who Barack Obama was. We didn't tell them, by the way. Um, aside, this one's free, has nothing to do with it. My youngest would do this thing when she was really little where she would come into a room and run as fast as she could and then yell, a shade Obama. I don't know what that means. It was like, a shade? She didn't know Obama was someone's name. She thought it was a nonsense word. And then she would leap in the air and jump on me. <laughs> and I thought it was hilarious. So I was like, hey, by the way, that's the president. And then one time some friends came over and she comes running out of the nursery and goes, a shade Obama, and jumps on me. And they were like, what kind of liberal indoctrination machine <laughs> is your home? But I was like, you don't understand, she doesn't. Anyway, but it wasn't before long she realized that was like a person's name. And uh, so she could, they could understand a president and a judge and a policeman and a protester and all the things that make democracy wonderful. See what I did there? Um, and, but they couldn't understand a word like democracy. So we understand neurologically, young children cannot understand God without a face. And you get to a point um, where your boxes of God kept falling down until you finally just, you embrace this sort of mysterious, infinite oneness source of all. And then you try to tell that to your toddler, and they're like, well, I think God's a guy with a beard, and he likes cupcakes. And you're like, well, that's beautiful, but you have to understand, God is the mystery that undergirds everything. And they're like, I think there's probably rainbows and unicorns in heaven. <laughs> My approach was like, yes, because you love rainbow and unicorns. So, of course, they're with God, because God is love, and God loves you. That's the only message that matters when they're this little and this many. I'm about to cry on stage thinking about my little ones. I've been touring so much and then I got, I've been home for like five weeks of the first back out on tour thing and I was cripplingly homesick today because <laughs> I've been home so long. It's so nice, like my kids remembered what I looked like and anyway. Uh, <laughs> so at first, God loves you. And then we get into like more specificity, more stories. The stories help underpin a picture of God that place the child within a religious tradition. When you share stories from the Bible, you're helping them identify with the Bible as part of the story of their people later on. Yes, it's indoctrination. Yes. Guess what we found? Religion really is a mind virus, and Bible stories are like a vaccination. 
Here's what I mean. The children of secularists are more likely to become religious fundamentalists than to be atheists. No matter how, I'm not saying they're rebelling against their parents. They can love their parents. They have a great relationship with their parents. They can have never experienced any trauma from their atheist parents. By the way, the studies tell us atheists make great parents by the numbers. Um, but it's okay to place children within a religious tradition. Here's why. Because later they'll ask you about that tradition and why it's worth anything. And now you face the interesting choice. Do I quash their questions or do I celebrate them? Do I allow myself to appear limited or do I try to pretend that I'm all-knowing? And so often we're encouraged, probably not in a Presbyterian church, honestly, but a lot of times in uh, an evangelical church, we're encouraged to like present this is the one right story. And I decided with my kids, <laughs> I've been really wrong about God multiple times. I'm just going to tell them what I know and what I don't know. So we talked about Islam and why people believe Islam. And we talked about why people don't believe in God at all. And I remember my oldest daughter was like wrestling with whether she wanted to go through confirmation or not because she wasn't sure if she believed in God or not. I don't know where she gets that. And, uh, and like, I like, remember my wife started getting angsty about it. And I was like, hey, babe, like, I've literally heard you say a couple times last year you weren't sure if God was real. Like, now you're worried, like, Madison doesn't want to go to the ceremony. And, uh, and Madison came and had all these questions, and I was answering them, and I was realizing, like, I have answers to these questions written down somewhere. Oh, yeah. So I pulled up my book. <laughs> so step one, write a book. <laughs> Open the book, wrote an inscription to my daughter. Uh, I'm not going to tell you the inscription, or I will literally cry and be unable to continue. And hand her the book and said, read this, let's talk some more. And uh, she read my book, and then I went back on tour. And I was on tour on her confirmation day and her birthday. I'm a terrible father. Anyway, so, um, and she said, she called me, and she said, Dad, I'm, I'm, I'm doing confirmation. I'm like, oh, really? So the book helped. And she said, the book's really good. It's like, I, that's a non-answer. Did the, so did my chapter on the church? She's like, well, it was good, um, but I, I made a different decision. And I said, what? And she said, well, I was talking to Pastor Betsy. By the way, if you've never had a woman pastor, you got to try it. <laughs> it's amazing. Anyway, uh, especially if you have daughters, right? They go and talk to, like, someone who has a very similar lived experience. What a weird idea. Also, I don't know if you know this, there are more f women Christians than men. Secularization is kind of a gender phenomenon. <laughs> anyway, so, so she says, and Pastor Betsy said, I wasn't saying what I believed about God. I was saying I was committed to the church, and I knew the church was committed to me. Well, I didn't have that answer anywhere. <laughs> uh, and so she got confirmed in a community that celebrates her uncertainty. So we pray together every night for bed. And we talk about Bible stories, but we also honor questions. 
And how do I know what stage my children are in? By their questions. My youngest daughter does not wrestle with existential doubt at all. It's not that she's unintelligent. It's that I don't think she gives a crap. Like, she's like my wife. She's like very concerned with the here and the now and the real. I remember one day I heard her and her sister fighting about whether or not hell was a literal place. (laughs) And my oldest daughter was like, if God is love, then God would not create a place where it's possible to be apart from God. And (laughs) Acey goes, well, the Bible says there's a hell. (laughs) And I was like, that's literally a Facebook thread, like, just happening over there. (laughs) And I stayed out of it. I I didn't go resolve. I didn't, like, you know. And when they would come to me, like, Dad, is there a hell? What do you think? Oh, terrible father, right? No. I don't want my kids to ever feel like they can't come to me to talk about the divine. I never want them to feel like they have to hide to get my approval. Because I think if God is real, the God we're presented with in the Torah, then why are you hiding? Why are you ashamed? Your beloved. The most important message at every developmental stage, God loves you and I love you. And I think that will cover up any other mistake you make. So can you discuss from um, maybe your interpretation of the data, but can you discuss our species obsession with accumulating weapons? Um, from a psychological, Ooh. sociological, anthropological, anthropological, and then also a biblical perspective, and uh, <laughs> how you interpret um, maybe the scriptures as it uh, pertains to accumulating weapons. Okay. It's like, yep, 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 what? <laughs> yep, yep. Um, I'll go ahead and let you know which one of my answers will be the weakest. It's weird. I've read the Bible a lot, and the more I read the Bible, the less qualified I feel to share my opinion about it. And the more I hang out with Pete Inns, <laughs> the more I'm like, I should never say anything. Um, he's a Bible scholar, like an actual Bible scholar. Anthropologically, I got you. The most violent species of ape on the planet Homo sapiens. We got it. We're the best. (laughs) We're the best at war. We're the most likely to wage war. Second most war-loving species of ape on the planet, the chimpanzee. It's number two. Chimpanzees, if there's two populations, require a two and a half to three to one differential to wage war. Not conflict, war. What's a war? We're going to fight until one side is dead. Why? Because chimps go, if there's one of me and one of you, I'll probably, there's, a, there's like a coin toss that will get through this. But if there's three of us to one of you, we're going to win, they're going to lose. That's actually pretty reasonable. What we found in research 
human populations will look at a 5% population differential and go, we got this. 5%. Mutually assured destruction is in our DNA. We are all over it. So why do we want to accumulate weapons? Because we all understand a profound truth. Humans are the most dangerous animal in the world. I should just stop there. (laughs) Have a good night, everybody. Uh, No. um, Yeah, but humans are the most dangerous animals in the world. But humans are also the only animal in the world that engages in intentional international aid. Humans are the only animals in the world that build charitable foundations. Our incredible capacity for violence is matched by a phenomenal capacity for empathy and action toward relief. What flips that switch? Primatologists would tell us the answer lies in our two nearest genetic relatives, the chimpanzee and the bonobo. Chimpanzees uh, fight a lot, not just against other troops, but within their own troop. The leader of a troop of chimps looks for any possible uprising, any coup that could occur, and viciously puts down all opposition. We're nothing like chimps. <laughs> right? Just any possibility. Wait, you're not with me? You're against me. Let's do this, right? And chimps, they're powerful animals. Like they're, like they're smaller than us, but any one chimp can take the best fighter human in the world. No contest. So a chimp, a chimp battle is a truly one-on-one, is a dangerous situation. But bonobos resolve social anxiety in situations with mutual sexual stimulation. They're like, would you like some fruits? Have some fruits. I have some fruits. You could have some fruits. I am sorry we fought. Let's make out. That's how they resolve all conflict. Two troops of bonobos will have like a little bit of strife, and they're like, there's only one way to solve this. (laughs) Come on, people now. Smile on your brother. I mean, that's just bonobos, right? So what's the difference between these very genetically similar primates, how they have such radical differences in behavior? Bonobos have developed in an environment where food and water is plentiful. And chimpanzees have developed in an environment where food and water is scarce. How do you domesticate humans? Food, water, shelter, security. Ask zookeepers how often they feed the tigers all the time. Zoo tigers never get a rumble in the tummy. They're like, man, I just ate. They're like, more steak, Mr. Tiger, more steak. Would you like to drink from a bottle like a baby and be like kind of turned into an infant mentally? And the tiger's like, yeah, whatever. That's where you want a tiger because if the tiger gets hungry at all, those dinner plate-sized paws will maul you fast. 
It's a killing machine, just like Homo sapiens. So what is the smartest scientific approach to reducing violence? Make sure people have access to food, water, shelter, and security. Full stop. It's self-evident. But our inner chimpanzee says we need to get a lot of sticks in case things go sideways, which is how you end up with, what's the U.S. stockpile? 2,700 warheads, something crazy, and Russia's like 5,000 or 7,000. I could be 2,000 off on either side. But it's enough nuclear warheads to destroy all of human civilization many times over. I want to dismantle every nuclear weapon, every single one. Why? I don't trust a bunch of human beings with nuclear weapons because somebody's got to go chimp once and we're all dead. Once, one time, ever, and we're all dead. We're about to spend a trillion dollars modernizing our nuclear arsenal. Spend a tenth of that and disassemble it. Go first. I don't care what Russia's doing. Pump all that money into relieving poverty in the United States and abroad. And scientifically speaking, the world will be safer. What does the Bible say? The Bible says a rich man would sit every night in his home and live large. Every night. And every night a poor man would sit outside and beg for the crumbs of his table. And he'd say, I got this. I got this. This is my food. Why don't you go work? And... Uh, Jesus didn't speak a lot about hell. Did you know that? It's not a common topic of conversation. Frankly, the afterlife was not a freaking topic of discussion. But in this parable, Jesus said that the rich man died and went to a place of suffering where he begged for even a drop of water to relieve his thirst. And the Bible says that that rich man had a bad eye. What? A bad eye? Like, like, I have astigmatism? Idioms get lost in translation across millennia. To have a bad eye was to care about yourself and your needs when the prophets called us to care for the poor and the orphan and the widow and the immigrant. But to have a good eye was to be a person who gave and gave generously. But Jesus also said, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. How do we reconcile those two energies? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, you can make a reasonable biblical interpretation, and many people do, that God says build aircraft carriers. You can, you can take texts in the Bible, and especially Old Testament texts, where the favor of God was equated with military might, and make a case for more bombs and more stealth bombers and more aircraft carriers, but we have to remember to understand the Bible, and I am way out of expertise here, we have to read the Bible 
remembering a specific author spoke to a specific audience with a specific agenda, and that Jesus was a first-century Palestinian living underneath Roman occupation who saw his friends and family brutally oppressed through a system of slavery and economic extraction, and frankly, a brutal criminal justice system. And Jesus, who constantly spoke of peace, said, I come to bring not peace, but a sword. And Jesus threw out and lashed the backs of people who sat in the, in the, the court of the nations in the temple and uh, made it a place of exclusive instead of universal access. So the peace we see prescribed by Jesus, some scholars would say, is not a negative peace, as Martin Luther King would call an absence of conflict, but the presence of justice. That sometimes you've got to go into the court with the whip. And sometimes you have to turn the other cheek. And when asked to walk a mile, the legal maximum, you walk two to reveal the brutality of a system of inequality. I think the Bible's message becomes clear when read through the right lens that God was not with the power of Rome, but the weakness of Jerusalem. That in fact, when God decided to make a physical presence on earth, He came from Nazareth. In those days, the response to Jesus of Nazareth would be, where the hell is Nazareth? Archaeologists tell us that was a community of probably 100 homes that may not have had a well. That's like a place today that doesn't have a stoplight. You just drive through it if you've ever seen it, right? Where the hell is Nazareth? And that's where God with us came from. So I'm just a swords into plowshares guy. Uh, I mean, that's a lot of enriched uranium. It's built in power plants that don't throw carbon into the sky. A trillion dollars would go a long way. And uh, the way of Christ, the way, the truth, and the life is not the way of the chimpanzee. It's not the biggest, most powerful stick. But instead, to hang from one to reveal a system that's morally bankrupt and cruel and, dare I say, anti-Christ. I felt... (laughs) Thank you. Well, you've done it. You've wasted another perfect block of time in the subway or your car and listened to Ask Science Mike. What is wrong with you, Internet people? Uh, No, seriously, I appreciate it. By the way, Grant Haven, oh, man, 
That was a lot of fun. Great questions. I want to thank the patrons on Patreon who make this show financially possible. I want to thank Greg Nordine, who spends a whole lot of time editing the live shows. Andrew Golucky for his work on pre-production. And listeners everywhere for, well, making me not just be a crazy person talking to himself. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you next week. Yeah!